Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. I'm Mark Gibson, and I'm head of the Chagask Outreach and Innovation Department, and we're coming to you from a somewhat overcast Oak Park, County Carlow, this morning. I'm also joined by Pat Murphy, who's head of the Chagask Environment Knowledge Transfer Programme. Good morning to you, Pat. Good morning. And uh, just a reminder to everybody that this series is brought to you by Chagask in collaboration with Dairy Sustainability Ireland, the National Rural Network and Food Drink Ireland Skillnet. And today we'll be discussing the implications of climate neutrality for agriculture, land use and forestry in Ireland. And I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. David Stiles, lecturer in environmental engineering at the University of Limerick. Good morning, David. How are you today? Yeah, I'm yourself. Good morning, Mark. I'm good. Thank you very much. Great, great. And David, uh, you're coming to us from Galway this morning. Is that right? That's right. From Moycullen, a rainy, rainy Moycullen in Galway. That's where I'm based. Very good. Very good. And um, so you're, you're based in the University of Limerick. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing there in uh, University of Limerick? I suppose a lot of our work um, really focuses on life cycle assessment and how to kind of account for the greenhouse gas emissions and other impacts arising from bio bioeconomy kind of production systems, farming systems. And um, recently, which I'll show in the presentation, we've had a, a sequester project looking at how we can balance out emissions with removals at a landscape level um, in Ireland. So this is a really hot topic at the moment in agriculture. Uh, obviously, there's the uh, the uh, carbon budgeting process is on the horizon uh, for the whole of Ireland. So there'll be a lot of people with, watching with great interest today about the prospect of, uh, or the, the role of sequestration in that carbon balancing exercise uh, that will have to happen over the next number of years. But today, you're, what sort of a range are you looking at uh, for this, this type of work? Um, well, <laughs> We're really looking at 2050 as a time horizon. So I know there's a lot of talk at the moment about the budget for 2030. And so we're looking further ahead, the specific target the country has for climate neutrality. And so when we look ahead that far, we're talking about pretty serious areas, uh, as I'll show you kind of half a million to a million hectares might be needed uh, to diversify into options to, to remove, to have carbon removal. So it's a pretty large scale we need to think about for 2050, really. And, but, but we need to obviously start that process sooner rather than later to get there by 2050. And that, that's the kind of message, if you like, that's underlying the presentation. Okay, so some fairly transformative change uh, required over the next number of decades. Okay, well, look, David, if you could uh, share your screen with us yeah. and uh, we'll get, get uh, going with the presentation. Uh, we'll hand over to you, David, and uh, we'll chat to you afterwards. Okay, well, thanks very much, Mark. And thanks very much for the invitation to present here today on the Signpost series. It's a great opportunity to, uh, to, to reach the wide audience and, and talk about some of these thorny issues. Um, so as mentioned, I'm going to talk about the implications of climate neutrality for Ireland's land sector. And um, I'll, I'll kind of acknowledge people that have been working closely um, on various projects on this over the past um, few years, including Colin Duffy, Remy Prutome, A.D. Forster, uh, Mary Ryan and Colin O'Donoghue. And, and they've all been contributing in one way or another to our sequester project, which is in the EPA DAFN project, which has been looking at how we get to climate neutrality in the in the Affaloo sector by 2050. So to give you an outline, the objective really here is to deliver some insight from recent research on the land sector. We don't have by any means all the solutions, but I just want to give a feel for the magnitude of some of the changes that, uh, according to the evidence that we have at the moment, look like will be needed to get to climate neutrality by 2050. So I'd like to start off with actually offering the conclusions just to give you a, a kind of initial feel for the scale of this challenge that we need to address. And then I'll step back and we'll look at the context. Um, we'll look at what we can do with livestock abatement and some of the limitations of that, and then the need for land use diversification um, with a few discussion slides at the end. So firstly, I'll start by saying that um, when we talk about 2050 and climate neutrality, it's a very long way from where we are now. So in a way, what we need to do is, is kind of dream about what the future could look like, because it certainly doesn't look like, look like what we have at the moment with probably in the region of 25 million tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent from the land use sector. It, after, and, that, and that's after accounting for the existing sequestration we have from forests and wood products. So, and from mineral soil, uh, grasslands on mineral soils. So 
we have a huge challenge. We essentially need to get that 25 million tonnes down to zero by 2050 in net. And that's the, that's the challenge we're facing. And that's why we take this perspective of, of trying to reimagine what the future could look like. And then the question is, how do we get there? So we don't have all the answers, but we have some indications of the magnitude of land use change we might need to get to that kind of balance by 2050. And that's what I'd like to talk through today. So the conclusions then to start off that way um, is that the climate emergency is going to drive transformative change, whether we like it or not, and that's going to happen over the next three decades. Climate neutrality really shifts the focus. So now with the Paris Agreement, we talk about climate neutral uh, 2050 or the second half of the century. That really shifts the focus from these kind of incremental improvements in efficiency to, uh, towards absolute national targets. So each country is supposed to reach um, climate neutrality at territorial level. And that's a different ball game from just improving efficiency. It really is a zero sum game and it requires that all emissions of carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide will be balanced by removals. We'll talk about methane later. Um, we estimate from the work that we're probably going to need in the region of 1 million hectares of diversification away from traditional agricultural production in order to deliver the types of land use change required to to be compatible with climate neutrality and to offer enough offsets to maintain productive agriculture on the rem uh, remainder of the land. So this obviously implies some degree of herd reduction and, and the level of herd reduction is going to be really highly dependent on the efficiency of future looking abatement technologies, not, not what we know work at the moment, but what we hope could work in the future. So failure to plan beyond important medium-term targets, um, such as, for example, the carbon budget we're talking about now um, uh, for 2030, failure to plan beyond that is, is actually a big risk. There's a risk of misallocation of resources. There's a risk of disorderly contraction of bovine production. There's a risk of stranded assets because we might be investing in infrastructure now for production and also for abatement of that production, which might become redundant if we don't have the measures in place to support that production through offsets in the future. And we might not be prepared to actually exploit some of the emerging markets and opportunities that are going to arise with this like, rapidly developing market in, in carbon and carbon pricing and bioproducts and bioenergy that's going to go with that as we try to decarbonize the whole economy. So there are lots of opportunities here we need to, to grasp, but to do that, we need to plan. Um, and there's an urgent need there for, for this, some kind of vision, a vision or multiple visions. Not everybody's gonna agree on the same vision, but at the moment, we don't seem to have many clear visions of what the future could look like. And that's really, I think, what we're calling for at the end of the sequester project is for the land use sector to, and stakeholders to engage to, to create some of these visions because that's the way of maximizing the chances of a just, just transition, just transition sorry, for farmers uh, and to make sure that we, we can uh, reward farmers for the, all the public goods they deliver as well as uh, the food which is valued at the moment in the market. So to provide some context, it's really important to start off with acknowledging the success of Ireland's um, agri-food sector. And it produces a huge amount of milk and beef for export with a comparatively low carbon footprint compared with international production. The marginal abatement costs uh, curve that's been developed by Targets has identified a further 15% of emission um, cuts that can be made to current production. So we've got the opportunity to become more efficient uh, in, in bovine production. Ireland relies on an extremely productive grass platform with grass growth in some areas for most days of the year. And that, that's a, an excellent basis for um, protein production via ruminants, uh, uh, which doesn't rely on cropland and it keeps large stores of carbon in the soil beneath that land. So that's a, potentially it, it does have a very important contribution to make to sustainable food production well into the future. There's a very efficient value chain because spring carving is linked with the export of milk solids, which are sensitive to seasonality of production. Um, it means that Ireland can produce milk solids at very low cost compared with other competitors in Europe. And the sector uh, contributes, agriculture contributes 7% to gross national income and employment and 10% to export value. So it's a really important sector um, for Ireland's uh, uh, kind of economic well-being. Plus there are large multipliers effect, uh, multiplier effects of 1.8 to 2.5 times the actual economic activity in the agriculture sector itself. There have been some 
um, initiatives to really put in place excellent traceability, especially for the beef, so that, that people know where that, that meat is coming from. The, the quality standards and the welfare standards are excellent by international comparisons. And the landscape in Ireland contains massive carbon stores, though not necessarily um, large ongoing sinks of carbon, which is what we'll come to during this presentation. On the other hand, we know we live in an era where climate is changing rapidly. We see those effects and farmers see those effects more than anybody. Um, and we have a climate and biodiversity emergency. And it's uh, clear that Ireland is a bit of an outlier within the EU. We have emissions of over 12 tonnes of CO2 equivalent per capita, 35% of which is from agriculture. And those emissions have been going in the wrong direction relative to our targets. We have a land use sector. Um, excluding agriculture, which is a net greenhouse gas emitter, which is quite unusual, and that's because of a large area of drained organic peaty soils. Um, we're exceeding targets for ammonia, for nitrogen oxides. We are starting to experience declining water quality. And meanwhile, we're importing huge, huge value of, of fossil fuels every year, and that looks like it's only going to increase um, in, in terms of the cost of some of those fossil fuels. So we have some big challenges globally and Ireland actually as a microcosm is experiencing many of those challenges um, uh, directly as a country. So this is going to drive change. We know as we see more of these impacts, um, there's going to be more political pressure to take more action. And, and we can see already with the carbon budget, we've got some ambitious targets now for very large reductions by 2030. And that pressure is going to be maintained and, and probably increased as we see more and more evidence of climate change. Globally, the modeling that's been done suggests that we do we are going to see very large scale shifts in land use if we are to have any chance of meeting climate stabilization. So I won't dwell on these graphs, but they're basically some possible scenarios which have been modeled at the global level for how we achieve climate stabilization. And on the left side, we've got a graph, um, a graph where we, we try to cut emissions very quickly and therefore we don't need as many offsets into the future. On the right-hand side, we've got a graph where we leave the reduction of emissions till very late towards 2050. And then we, we have what we call a lot of overshoots, emissions overshoot, which we need to compensate then with even higher levels of offset in the land sector. And ultimately we'd be relying in that scenario on, on what we call bioenergy carbon capture and storage to take that biogenic carbon produced on land in bioenergy crops and trees and to lock it away in the old oil and gas wells that we've been using to provide our fossil fuels. So we're essentially pumping that carbon back down into the the original wells where we got the oil from in the first place. It's like a reverse logistics of the, the fossil fuel industry. And, and that's what we're looking at with overshoots and, and land sector will be very important to provide that initial carbon storage or carbon capture, sorry, in tree growth and biomass growth to support that. So depending on how fast we are at cutting emissions um, will have implications for how ambitious or, or how big the scale of change will be in the land use sector to compensate for those emissions. That's one key message from this. And, and we'll look at this in an Irish context in a few minutes. So in terms of the, where we stand at the moment in Ireland from the latest inventory figures, um, we have just over 20 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent coming from agriculture. About 60% of that is from methane. Um, it's not all, mostly cattle, not all cattle. Uh, manure, soil and nitrogen inputs from excretion from manures and from fertilisers. If we take a life cycle perspective, we, we also actually import fertilizers, which need to be manufactured. And we also import some feed and the, the, the emissions from that feed production are quite uncertain and they depend on whether you can land use change to, to convert to cropland to make some of those feed crops um, in there. But we've also got a huge chunk of emissions over 10 to 11 million tons in total from both drained organic soils and exploited wetlands and that makes a massive contribution to Ireland's um, inventory which hasn't had to be reported in, until very recently and from now on it will be reported and that will be counted in future targets and of course if we want to achieve climate neutrality all those emissions will need to be reduced or offset and so that makes a massive um, that, that makes that challenge if you like of climate neutral agriculture even greater because the land sector is going to have to reduce and offset all these drained organic soil emissions. At the moment, we've got a grassland sink of about 2 million tonnes of CO2 equivalent into mineral soils. And that's largely a function of grassland improvement. And the way that works in the inventory, that, that improvement, once that improvement stops, then that, that sink will fall out of the inventory. So we can't rely on that for 2050. Meanwhile, we've got a sink of about 4.5 million tonnes 
from forestry at the moment, and you could add about one and a half million tons from wood products onto that, carbon storage and wood products, but that's a declining sink. And uh, because of the harvest dynamics, we haven't been cutting much forest recently. And there have been some recently published new organic soil emission factors for organic soils under forests. So where we planted forest in the past on organic soils, the emissions are actually much higher than we thought. And that's going to mean that actually forestry is not going to contribute much of a sink at all towards 2030. And it just makes the challenge even greater for where we, where we find the offsets for these emissions. David, could I ask you just if you could go look at that car, that grassland carbon? Uh, could you explain that just a little bit more clearly for us there, the, 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 the temporary nature of that? Sure. So um, as I understand it at the moment, that's a, a function of when you improve grasslands and you put more input, more nitrogen inputs in, uh, into that grassland, it gets more productive and that higher productivity supports more biomass ultimately going back into the soil. You've got more grass growth, a lot of it's taken up by animals, of course, but then it's returned in manures, some of it's returned in residues, and the soil over time accumulates more carbon that way. So productive grassland has a higher carbon storage than, than kind of rough grazing or unimproved grassland. And so, I, uh, as I understand it, over the recent kind of uh, decades, grasslands, more grassland has been converted into productive grassland, and that's resulted in this transition towards a higher level of carbon stock. And the way it works in the inventory, there's a 20-year transition period. So after a land use change from unimproved to improved grassland, the carbon increase between those two grassland types is divided by 20 years, and it manifests over 20 years in the inventory. So that's, that's been happening. That's kind of a reflection of land use change that's been happening over the past um, few decades. Unless we continue, uh, continue indefinitely to improve grassland and we're going to run out of grassland to improve, then that, that effect is going to drop out of the inventory. So it's really when it drops out is a question of how much more improvement goes on. And there's obviously a 20 year lag after that improvement stops until it completely drops out. But it's a, it's a temporary effect. It's not a permanent effect, in other words. And it, it's kind of got a 20 year lifetime, if you like, as a sink. And we have to balance that with the the semi-natural grasslands that uh, support uh, biodiversity then as well. So um, I guess you're, you're into a, a exactly. scenario. Yes, Ex exactly. Yeah, there's a kind of trade-off there, if you like, between the biodiversity and the increase in the carbon stink. And, and of course, these are based on our, that's based on our current understanding. And it's a very um, broad brush tier one approach at the moment for these things in the national inventory. And we do hope the inventory will improve and that might change the picture. But this is kind of based on the current um, methodologies which have which have been proven up to now I guess. Okay thank you. So, so so that's the kind of story up to now we've got this this large emission essentially from the sector that needs to be um, offset. The question then is how do you define climate neutrality and when we started the project we thought this would be the easy bit but, um, because everybody was using the GWP 100 approach and we had the inventory um, to go with and we thought well it's just getting down to zero in the inventory but it's actually a bit more complicated than that because the scientific understanding has evolved and we know that methane has been treated now differently from carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. So we've got a question about aggregation metrics, about the time frame, about whether we look at cumulative emissions up until 2050, or do we look at a, a balance in 2050 and beyond? Um, uh, and, and those are kind of details which have been talked through at the moment in, in, in various forums. But if we Talk about methane first, uh, because it's been discussed a lot. And we have this challenge of metrics, different metrics. In the national inventory, we use a GWP 100 approach, which gives you the average warming of each kilogram of methane emitted over 100 years. But there's been a lot of talk about this new metric, GWP star, which is much more aligned with the um, global scenarios of warming effects of changes in methane emissions through time. So this is all about the marginal change in warming from changing levels of emissions uh, in, in relation to a reference level. It's a very forward-looking metric. GWP 100 is very useful for attribution. It's very scalable, convenient for inventories and footprints. GWP star is not useful for attribution. Um, it's very difficult when you start trying to downscale this from a global level because you, you start off with a certain reference point and you need to understand what, it's, what those emissions relate to. That's not easy to do with GWP star. So it's not a convenient metric for inventories. However, GWP 100 gives very poor representation of net warming effect towards climate neutrality as we get closer to climate neutrality, especially for countries with high methane contributions 
um, the GWP100 doesn't reflect the fact that we don't need to get to zero to have a zero net warming effect for methane. Whereas obviously with the GWP star, the strength is that we do much better represent the net warming effect through time as we move towards climate neutrality. So it's a very useful forward-looking metric. So there's been a lot of debate about this. And, and in my view, it, it comes to, it, it, it started to perhaps get a bit distracting from the key point, which is that we know at global level that we need to actually reduce methane by 24 to 47% is the estimates uh, to achieve climate stabilization. So that's the global reduction in, in biogenic methane that is required by 2050. The question then is really what's Ireland's fair share of that emission pie that will be left of methane within a sustainable climate neutral system globally? And there are different ways you can calculate this. We did some work on the sequester projects looking at how we slice up that pie according to economics, according to population, according to protein production. And depending on the method you take, um, you'd end up with a, a very different result. But, but basically it indicated that somewhere between 30 to 79% reduction would be required by 2050 um, relative to 2010 um, for Ireland to comply with some kind of objective definition of a fair share um, internationally. So what we're gonna do now is park methane. We need to have big reductions in methane. <clears throat> we don't know exactly how big, I think that will be subject to international negotiations, but they're going to be big and that needs to be tackled separately as a gas. <clears throat> so that really leaves for the balance, um, carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide to balance out. And a lot of those emissions that we saw from the organic soils that are carbon dioxide, um, about 40% of emissions from agriculture are the nitrous oxide and, and CO2. So we've got the agricultural emissions, we've got the organic soil emissions that need to come down and whatever we get them down to, <clears throat> excuse me, needs to be balanced with offsets. And <clears throat> as I explained, we can't at the moment on current understanding rely on soils being a long-term offset, mineral soils. So really we don't have many options. Trees are the only really proven scalable um, carbon removal technology we have. So essentially it comes down to a balance between agricultural production emissions, organic soil emissions, and forestry to offset those emissions. Those are the really three levers we have to pull. So we can go for reducing emissions in agriculture through efficiency or, or, or reduced activity. We can go for reducing organic soil emissions by re-wetting, and we can go for offsetting those emissions through forestry. So it, it actually comes down to quite a simple um, story, but that simple story perhaps belies the, the ambition that's, that needs to go into that to make it work, uh, because it is a zero-sum game. And it, it's quite simple, really, because less ambition in one sector, less ambition in driving down emissions in agriculture, simply means you have to have more ambition in the offsetting. It, that, that's the nature of the zero-sum game. And these are the land areas we're talking about to achieve the offsets necessary to support these kind of levels of reduction. So at the, the, the one end, we've got only going for say 25% emission reduction in agriculture, 25% re-wetting. Then we need to have forest 0.8 to 1 million hectares of lands uh, between now and 2050 to generate enough offset to, um, to offset those emissions. On the other hand, if we can over the next 30 years with various technologies and, and management practices drive down emissions of agriculture by 75%, and if we can re-wet similarly 75% of drained organic soils, then we need a much smaller area of uh, 0.3 to 0.4 million hectares of forestry to offset those emissions. So that, that's the kind of nature of the zero-sum game of climate neutrality. It's about achieving an absolute balance. And we don't have many levers to pull to do that. So the less ambitious we are on one lever, the more ambitious we have to be on another lever. That's the simple message really that comes out from those numbers. So I won't go into detail here, but just in the, in the sequester project where we've been looking at this for the past few years, we've developed a, a biophysical model, which is largely based on the national inventory report for the land sector. So we look at all the emissions from, with, from within the land sector, taking a tier two approach for animal emissions related to productivity, to grassland, soil sequestration, to um, forestry uh, sequestration and emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that then we can use this uh, biophysical model as a platform to then look at lots of other bio-based value chains in the future. And we're, we're just starting to do that now. But one of the attractions of putting all this into a model, and, and I should acknowledge here that, that Remy Prudhomme and uh, Colin Duffy have, have been at the coalface here, really doing a lot of the hard work with the coding that 
brought together previous models that we've you've used in the past in, in a basic Excel format. They put it all into Python code. And the attraction of doing that is that we can now randomize the running of scenarios. So we don't have to have preconceptions about what we think is going to be climate neutral. We simply run the model with randomized inputs for the land sector and we see what the model spits out. And then the ones that we can then filter them and see which ones actually comply with different definitions of climate neutrality. So we've just got this to, to work fully. Colm's just got it to, to generate 850 randomized scenarios. And I can't show them today. It's brand new data that we're just sifting through at the moment. But it's a, an attractive way of taking the uh, prior assumptions out of any um, um, kind of uh, vision, if you like, of what climate neutrality could look like. It's trying to be objective about what the combination of animal productivity, animal emission intensity, um, and, and animal numbers and different land uses could be to achieve that climate neutrality. So obviously one way we can get towards climate neutrality is to, to try and drive down emissions from agriculture. And that's going to be something that's very important. And um, I mean, Chagas have done and are doing a huge amount of excellent work in this regard. So the um, MAC work that um, uh, Gary Lanigan and, and Trevor Donnan um, led publication of in 2018 shows that we can achieve about 15% um, decoupling of emissions from production by 2030. Um, so that's important and, and it's really important that those measures are implemented, but that still leaves us quite a long way from where we need to be in terms of climate neutrality. So there's a lot of work that's now going on into um, um, ways of trying to reduce methane, such as 3NOP, and maybe that could work with things like boluses for grazing animals. So there's a, a lot of work that needs to be done to ascertain the feasibility and the costs of these things, but potentially we could be talking about quite significant reductions in methane from, from something like that. There's also work going on, um, for example, at Solar Head Farm, looking at zero synthetic nitrogen fertilizer inputs using grass clover to biologically fix nitrogen to avoid those nitrous oxide emissions arising from fertilizer application. Um, there's also things like inhibited urea, which can be used to massively reduce the emission factor of nitrous oxide. So there are some options out there through management and through technology, which could quite dramatically reduce um, methane and nitrous oxide, but they, they have yet to be proven. And I, uh, and, I, and I guess they're things that we hope we can rely on, but we're very uncertain about how much they can be relied on because uh, to, to, to give us that balance of emissions and removals into the future. So, so this story of climate neutrality is, is um, not clear at all. It's going to evolve dramatically in the future, depending on the success of these innovations, I think. Another uh, point is that if we start talking about having to prioritize parts of the herd because it might be necessary to reduce some of the herd because we see that we, we the scale of reductions we need to, to be able to offset are going to be quite large and the areas of land we need for the offsets are going to be quite large. So that inherently implies there's going to be a necessity to, to think about reducing herd numbers in aggregate. Then it comes down to the question of what's the balance between dairy and suckler herds. And, and obviously, just from a purely economic perspective and carbon perspective, it, it might look like an easy win to, to remove kind of non-milking or, or suckler herds or some of the suckler herd from the system uh, and, and focus on the more profitable uh, dairy production. So a few important caveats here, of course, aside from all the important um, kind of cultural and economic implications of that, that just specializing in dairy production, like uh, some very specialized systems in the US, for example, in other countries, might look very efficient from a milk production perspective because they carry very low overheads in terms of following animals and they uh, feed their animals very highly digestible feed with low emissions. That can look quite good if you take a narrow um, life cycle assessment perspective, just looking at the farm boundary and the feed production. But once you start thinking about the co-production of beef, which is a really important output from a dairy system and the surplus calves, which go on to be fattened to produce beef, um, systems that look very efficient because they're very specialized often don't look so efficient when you expand the boundaries. So we've, we've done a little bit of work on this in Costa Rica and in the UK some of the implications of intensification and specialization are that you can drive down your milk footprint, but you end up increasing your, the, the, the global footprint, if you like, of milk and beef production, because you've simply got to, unless we dramatically reduce our beef consumption, then we're going to need to produce that beef in a suckler herd, which always has higher emissions than dairy beef. So 
perhaps there's an opportunity to, to focus on maximizing dairy beef output alongside milk production in Ireland, because that's a way of contributing best towards a sustainable uh, milk and beef uh, production system. Obviously, these, these issues are very thorny and they've got implications for land use patterns, um, biodiversity, water quality, etc. So that leads us on to the kind of necessity, if you like, to have some kind of diversification of land use, because we obviously need to have offsets in place to offset emissions, residual emissions in 2050. And this isn't actually just for the land, land sector and for agriculture. We're going to need extra emissions from other sectors and for the wider economy. I won't focus on those for now, but those demands are going to be there. And I mean, that could also create opportunities um, in terms of carbon credits, et cetera, that could be paid for um, by companies that need to offset residual emissions. But basically, if we take a scenario, um, if you see the red dotted line here, where we've got a 50% reduction in agricultural emissions, if we can re-wet about 75% of drained organic soils, we, we then need to think about the level of offsets needed to balance out those residual emissions. And if we do that, and we look at typical rates of commercial kind of species mix forestry, 70% conifer or more conservation mix with only 30% conifer, then we're talking about between 18,000 and 22,000 hectares every year being planted between, say, 2050, uh, 2025 and 2050 in order to get the correct level or the necessary level of offsets just to balance out those emissions. So you can see that relative to what we're talking about in, in our climatise at the moment of 8,000 hectares per year, we're talking about massively higher planting rates being needed in order to generate those offsets in the future to give um, to give kind of allowance, if you want to put it that way, for future emissions. And the implication is that either we achieve those emissions by uh, or those offsets by starting now with ambitious afforestation, or we end up in the position where we don't have them in place and we either get pay massive fines, billions of euros um, at the national level, because we're talking about carbon being priced at hundreds of euros per tonne of CO2 by 2050, um, or we have to, in a disorderly fashion, uh, very quickly contract production. So those are the possible implications, if you like, of not ensuring we're on a pathway to achieving the offsets that we need by um, 2050. So we can see that it's going to really take quite a large area of land um, by 2050 in order to deliver that organic soil rewetting. We're talking about say at least 250,000 hectares of organic soils being re-wetted and um, in the region of 0 0.5, 0.6 um, uh, million hectares, oh sorry, 0.5 or 0.6 million hectares yeah, of, of forests being planted by then. So it's got big implications for land use. An important point, of course, is that um, um, forestry doesn't deliver offset straight away. It takes time to accumulate. I've got some caveats here about the model that we're using, which is a bit different from the, the CBM model used in the National Infantry. Um, the baseline is going to be a bit different because we've got an assumption about um, forests being harvested at the economic optimum, which is not what's happening at the moment. So that the um, so-called carbon cliff is a bit later here than it is in other work that's been done. But, but essentially what you can see is that once you start going to higher levels of afforestation, it takes some time for them to really kick in and really start generating those offsets into the future that we need. And by 2030, which is the current budget period, even if we start planting very quickly and very ambitiously, we're not actually going to achieve much additional offset by 2030. So forestry is not really well recognized, if you like, in the short term, um, because of its long term, afforestation takes a long term uh, time to, to really start generating those credits. Forestry management can play an important role for existing forestry in meeting the 2030 target, but we need to be conscious of the 2050 target because of the time lag. And so if we only focus on 2030 now and don't think about 2050, we risk being in the same place again and panicking in 10 years or 20 years time because we just don't have the offsets that we really need. So that's why it's important to start planning now for the offsets. Of course, um, climate neutrality isn't just about 2050. We need to look beyond that. And the dynamics of forestry are complex. So these are very simplified um, scenarios for some old modeling work. So they're really just to indicate that the general pattern, if we have a more conservation type forest, we can have some very strong offset going into say 2070. That level of offset starts to reduce then towards 2120, 100 years from now. If we go to commercial forest and we harvest them, then we can end up actually having a delayed carbon cliff, quite a large carbon cliff around 2080. And, and of course, that will be balanced again through time with additional 
future offsets, but it means that the average strength of that sink is going to be weaker through time. But this is only the terrestrial balance. And this is where I think we need some different intersectoral thinking because the trees go somewhere, the wood goes somewhere. And in recent work we've published um, in Nature Communications, we've shown that the, um, the contribution of forestry to terrestrial carbon is very important. But over a 100 year time frame, the um, contribution of forestry to downstream mitigation by substitution of fossil fuels and concrete, even assuming decarbonisation of those sectors in the future, and the contribution to, to harvested wood pellet carbon storage, that more than doubles the net, the net sequestration or the net offset, if you like, the net mitigation that we can achieve by forestry long term. So we need to think about those downstream effects of forestry and how we can integrate them into the Irish economy to reduce the three million tonnes of CO2 that we have coming from the cement sector and the, the millions of tonnes of CO2 we have coming from different um, parts of the energy sector. So there's an opportunity here to link land use with, with downstream mitigation. And that's the kind of thinking we're going to need if we have any chance to have any chance of getting to climate neutrality. Um, so, so just to think about this in time scale, uh, we've got we've got terrestrial carbon storage over the first decades. We've got substitution then with the thinnings and the first harvests. Of, of concrete, of, of energy. We've got harvested wood product carbon storage, which could happen for, for many decades after the harvest. And then we've got the opportunity to use that wood after it's been in buildings, for example. So that's how we can end up with very long mitigation um, from forestry. There's obviously an opportunity to diversify into renewable energy. Biogas is touted as something that's very compatible with a grass-based system with all the, the slurry and manure that's generated. That's an excellent feedstock for anaerobic digestion as is food waste and residues. We need to be careful about putting in edible byproducts or grass and maize because uh, they take a lot of land. And when we start looking at the conversion efficiency of, of area to energy, we end up with a very poor outcome for things like maize and grass. Um, so just to give an example, uh, if we, we have a maize biogas combined heat and power plant, we might achieve um, 32 megawatt hours per hectare per year of net energy. If we put solar panels, we're talking about over 1,000 megawatt hours per year of energy. And this is in the Welsh context, so it's not, not the sunniest part of the world. If we're talking about wind, we end up with over 3,000 megawatt hours per net hectare used. So simply using land for biogas via grass is not, it's a very inefficient use of land. But nonetheless, if it helps to, um, in limited quantities, to leverage the ability to digest slurry and reduce those emissions and generate some renewable energy that way, then that, that can be a good thing and it can facilitate a bio-based transition. But we need to be careful about the, the, the scale and the scope of this. Um, and of course, there's all sorts of disruptive technologies that are on the horizon that we don't know about two minutes yet. Left, David. Okay, sorry. Yeah. So uh, we don't know about these things. They're going to come on the horizon and, and they could be a joker in the pack that completely change where we're going. So that, that's an indication of the balance. There's lots of challenges. Um, dairy farmers are currently riding a market wave. Beef farmers are just getting by. It's not very profitable. They're not getting well compensated for their work. Um, but there have been negative experience with, with diversification in the past, which are going to put farmers off any future trajectories without long-term stable kind of indications of support. We need to develop a framework to support supply and demand for so bioindustrial policy needs to be developed alongside um, producing the feedstocks. There's a lot of bureaucracy around forestry, which is hindering its um, implementation at the moment. Of course, we're going to need good monitoring, reporting and verification of carbon credits in the future. And there's questions around who owns those carbon credits. The key question is, can policy support and bridge the temporal disconnect between the costs and benefits that we're seeing and the anticipated future costs of emissions and the future value of carbon credits with the low um, current value of carbon credits being offered and what are the control points and what scale do we um, achieve neutrality at. So in summary change is happening, a reactive approach carries many risks in terms of economic, reputational, quality of life risks, a proactive approach can consolidate and develop Ireland's advantages and we need to integrate a vision for the land sector with other sectors of the economy but also think about how we, we integrate efficiency with abatements with diversification and um, with resilience and adaptation. We need to do all those things. We can't just concentrate on one, on one or the other. And farmers, of course, are the agents of change who work extremely hard to manage the landscape, but they need support and guidance to give indication of where we need to go. And, and there is an opportunity here to reevaluate what farmers do, but 
perhaps more importantly, how they're rewarded for what they do, all the services that are provided now that they're not paid for, which are very valuable. So we know the key ingredients to neutrality will be ambitious livestock abatement, herd reduction, to some extent, hundreds of thousands of hectares of organic soil rewetting, wetland regeneration, hundreds of thousands of hectares of afforestation, mix of commercial and conservation, diversification of the bioeconomy. We, we simply have to do all of those things, I think, by the look of it, to actually have any chance of getting to climate neutrality. Now, the exact mix depends on, um, on, on what is deemed to be most attractive and acceptable. And I think stakeholders need to engage with that to, to determine the exact recipe. Um, uh, as I say, that's a zero-sum game. So the more you do in one area, um, the less you might need to do in another. But those, those levers need to be pulled quite hard to get to climate neutrality. So I'm sorry I went over a bit, a bit over time. Thanks very much for your attention and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, David. Um, no, you, you did, did well time-wise considering the, the complexity of the subject and uh, thank you for, for stepping us through that. I mean, it is, uh, there's no doubt about it, 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 it is, it is a, a very complicated area when you start looking at uh, offsets and uh, life cycle analysis and so forth. Um, uh, I mean, you, you did mention uh, the, I mean, the, the the difference between suckler beef production and dairy beef uh, production, um, and the, the the differences there in terms of the the emissions associated with them. Um, I suppose what what I'm keen to do as well here today is to 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 talk about the broader context of of that in in Ireland, and obviously there's a, a strong tradition there of of suckler beef production. Um, and its suitability for particular parts of the country as well. So I, I think it's, it's just worth mentioning that uh, all of what you've, you've spoken about there, there's obviously there's, there's, there's wider implications for, 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 for those decisions to be made. You mentioned at the start, uh, I think you said the phrase, uh, we need to dream about the future. And uh, I know that probably 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have imagined ourselves here talking on a webinar uh, system from our homes uh, following a, uh, or during a pandemic. Um, I, I'd just be interested to on your own thoughts of what, what that future you see from, from your own point of view. What, uh, are you allowed as a scientist <laughs> to dream <laughs> about the future? Well, I think there are a couple of points here. I think it's a kind of mugs game to predict the future, basically. And I, I think that's a, it's a difficult area to be in, but we know we're a long way from where we need to be. And I think one of the key messages for me is that we can't predict actually some wonderful technology could come along to completely decouple emissions from agricultural production. And that would be fantastic. And maybe in the next 30 years, that will come along and we'll meet our 2050 targets um, anyway. And, and, and that's great. We can't predict that. But what we know is that with things in the, in the pipeline at the moment, what's very clear to me is that we can mitigate emissions sooner or later, but if we're serious about 2050, it's inevitable we're going to need a large level of offset. That's just one inescapable fact of climate neutrality that I can see. And that offset's gonna come probably for the agricultural sector to, to offset residual emissions, but, but definitely also from the, the rest of the sector. We've got 40 million tons of CO2 coming from the rest of Ireland's economy. If we can reduce that by 90%, we've still got 4 million tons of CO2 that needs to be offset. So. There are going to be very big demands on offsetting in the future. That's just inescapable. That's the reality of climate neutrality. And I think Ireland's land sector is the sector that can deliver that. No other sector is able to deliver that. So one way or another, we can't predict the future, but we know we're going to need a lot of offset. That's something I'm very confident about as a scientist. You also mentioned the, the topic of just transition. And, and uh, look, I am conscious a lot of questions coming through and we have a, a huge level of interest in this topic. But I, I am keen to just to tease out the, the whole concept or principle of just transition um, because it has been uh, talked about a lot, um, but it, it seems to be quite a, a risky principle in that uh, you're, 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 you're asking people to trust that, uh, okay, we're going to, uh, change uh, practices here and affect essentially you're not going to be disadvantaged as, as a result of this uh, how confident are you that um, that we as a society are, are able to, to to do to make that just transition um, big question I know I'm, but it's, it's, it's just yeah, it's, it's, it's an important question I mean sometimes I'm very pessimistic these days but I mean we we know 
change is coming and we, we can see climate change happening. We can see it getting worse and we can see that eventually the way we are as humans, we react when there's a problem. And as the problem manifests more, then the reaction becomes stronger and there's more pressure to do something. So somewhere between now and 2050, we know that there's going to be a lot more agitation. Like it's already, there's already quite strong agitation and there'll be more to take action. And, and that could happen quite quickly. And that's going to cause big risks and disruption because... I mean, beef is a high emission product. There'll be questions over beef. There's a lot of disruptive technology in the pipeline around alternative proteins, for example. I think that there's very high risk of keeping going as we are because I think things are going to change. And I think um, there's no risk-free option. We're in a time of change and it's not easy for anybody. None of us like change, but actually change is happening whether we like it or not. And there are lots of risks of address just transition. I think it would be hard to pull off well, but I think there are probably even bigger risks of not trying to make that transition and not trying to plan ahead for the future. So I think there's no easy option. We're just in a position where we, as a society, we consume a huge amount, we emit a huge amount. It's fundamentally unsustainable and we have to change. But how we do that is, is going to be an evolving iterative process. And there's no, I think, I think the more we can try and project into the future of, of some of the things we know we need to do, like the, the offsets and and decarbonisation of energy, for example, we know we have to do all those things. The, the more we get on with those things, the better we have a chance for just transition. But um, it, it's not going to be easy and it's going to involve different business models and, and paying people for doing things we don't pay for at the moment. Like we don't pay farmers for managing the landscape or delivering um, a nice countryside that we all like to look at or walk in or, um, or, or maintaining carbon stores. And those are things that are going to need to be paid for in the future, I think. Hey David, thank you for that. Um, I'm conscious we've a, uh, a lot of interest, a lot of questions coming through here. So, yeah. so if, if we could try and cluster some of the questions, Pat and, and okay. David, if you could be maybe concise in your responses as well, we might get, be able to get through some 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 more of them. So over to you, Pat. Yeah, and I think there's there's a, a comment from a farmer here, and it, it says, as a farmer, we're uh, are we happy to to farm carbon and our, our food? Uh, once carbon is valued correctly and, and consumers are willing to pay for it, I would be happy to farm carbon. But who is going? Who is my consumer, and who is going to pay? And I, maybe it's not so much a question as a as a as a comment. Um, yeah. a, a question then. In, uh, uh, um, considering uh, the different metrics for CH four uh, can cause confusion. Should we aim to split? Uh, the greenhouse gas approach and have specific metrics for each of the greenhouse gases instead of aggregating them? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. It, it seems that it works pretty well for nitrous oxide and CO2 because they're both long-lived long gases. So I think looking for a balance in those gases makes a lot of sense. Methane, because of its short-lived nature, that's why it's treated differently and have, we have different metrics. But I think it makes a lot of sense to package that out and, and look at a separate target for methane, but I think we can still aggregate nitrous oxide and CO2 because we need to do that to get to a balance. Okay. Uh, a comment, urgency required all round and the question, uh, what are the plans to re-wet organic soils and, and what about support for polluticulture uh, to allow income from on re-wetted soils? And I suppose that the, the issue on, on potential income of re-wetting soils is, is, a, is a really big issue. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, these are, I don't have all the answers to these things. I think they are things that have to be done. And I think um, farmers are the people that will need to be on the ground doing them, but they will need to be somehow rewarded. And it's going to be worth a lot to the country in terms of avoided fines for rewetting those soils because of the large emissions that they're generating at the moment. So somehow it's about transferring that, that national benefit to the farmer. That comes back to that question of who pays, I think, for, for carbon farming. It's that that national benefit into the future needs to be somehow monetized and translated to farmers now so that farmers can take action now. Okay, there's a, there's a good few questions around the whole potential role of regenerative agriculture, uh, rewilding, uh, organic agriculture, uh, maybe uh, lumping a lot of people's questions into one, the, the potential role of those uh, relative to uh, conventional, what you might call more conventional agriculture and forestry, and where does the whole mix come together? I, I think that's a part of the discussion for that vision for the future. Like if we can, if some of those business models, if, if they can be translated into business models that work for farmers, some of those alternative options, then I think they need to be part of that diversification because anything that we can do, do to kind of reduce dependence on, on very high emission types of agriculture is going to help with the climate neutrality 
ambition, I think. A very specific question in relation to the Dublin model. Are you using GWP star GWP 100 in dealing with, with uh, methane? Uh, it's neutral because we generate gases and we're filtering in different ways. So that's what we're doing at the moment, filtering with GWP 100 and filtering without methane in there. So we're doing it in different ways. Uh, just a, a question. Is the, is the land sector expected to carry more than its fair share uh, in climate uh, uh, neutrality is transport domestic and international and industry uh, uh, doing their piece but everybody's going to have to take really dramatic action when you look at the challenge of what we need to achieve i think the reality is there are going to be residual emissions like um, calcination process in cement um, aviation there are some reasons we can't get some emissions down to zero without completely stopping some activities in agriculture, of course, as well. So that's why we're going to need some offsets. So, and land is the only sector able to deliver those, those offsets. So everybody needs to do something, and, but there will be offsets required also for the non-land use sector and, and the land sector will have to deliver those offsets. But I think this is where the idea of income comes in because those sectors are going to have to pay for those offsets. So that's where future markets will develop and, and that's where there's an opportunity. And, and a number of questions coming in, in, in the, and, and probably typified by this question, where does food security fit into the uh, mix in terms of, of climate change debate and agriculture with world population increasing? Mm -hmm. Well, food security is obviously a primary objective. At, at the moment, we're not short of foods by any means, and it's a, partly about distribution, it's about diet, as well as it is about the total amount we produce. But there's huge opportunity to produce more food than we do actually on a smaller area of land and, and Ireland is very efficient and we should recognize that but there are areas of Brazil millions and millions of hectares which are used very inefficiently and those are the areas that are going to need to become more efficient to deliver that food and Ireland can only do so much and I think we need to achieve our kind of territorial balance as part of our international commitments. Okay there's a, few, a number of questions as well in relation to the grassland sequestration and the, the calculation of the current calculation, I think, as I understand it, of change in land, in, in, in land use, uh, giving you a 20-year window uh, for a, a, a sequestration. Does the, is the potential there for research to uh, prove or, or disprove grassland sequestration on an ongoing basis? And, and is there something to be gained in that space? Yeah, I mean, there is. That's a very uncertain area, and there's a lot of talk and different research has been done in this it's just so hard to prove because long term obviously takes very long term measurements these changes are very gradual over time but I mean if we're lucky we might be talking at something like half a ton of CO2 per hectare per year or a ton of CO2 per hectare per year that, that could make a useful contribution if it could be demonstrated and it, it's not going to be a panacea but it could contribute something but we just don't have enough evidence yet and that there is a need for more information there I think. Uh, just, just a question here, and it, 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 David seemed to suggest that carbon emissions are higher for, uh, for beef than dairy cows. Uh, I understand, and he's just saying that that's contrary to what he's saying. I think it's contrary to what you're saying as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's the emission intensity of the beef produced. The dairy beef has a much lower emission intensity than um, beef. beef, And then because there are more beef cows in total, or non-milking cows really, actually, including followers, they contribute more in aggregate than the, than, than the milking cows. Uh, what role do you think bioenergy, biogas has in supporting diversification and, and decarbonizing of the agricultural economy? Yeah, I think it can provide a very important pathway. As I mentioned, it's not actually a very efficient energy conversion technology, so it's really good for managing waste. So if we can get slurries into anaerobic digesters, that would be fantastic, but there's lots of logistical issues around that. And there's, there's work in other countries around hub and pod concepts where you can produce a bit of biogas and, and somehow bottle it or store it and transport it to a central location where you use it for energy conversion. I think we need to look at things like that because with lots of well-distributed farms, smaller farms through the countryside, it's difficult to implement these things, but they, they could be part of the solution with some good logistical planning. David, uh, you mentioned about the, um, the estimate of 1 million hectares of diversification required. Uh, 
has has that been broken down or are there are there I mean that that's just a very rough number kind of looking at the magnitude of forestry planting that we'll need to get the level of offsets associated with say 50% agricultural emission reduction and the level of the, the area of rewetting of organic soils so those two things together come close to a million hectares if we achieve a 50% reduction in agricultural emissions so it's a very ballpark figure of of the kind of area that might be needed just to show the scale really Okay, and, and, and I didn't see reference to um, additions to uh, or supplementation in diets within your presentation. Um, no, maybe no. That's maybe I just skipped it, but uh, that's uh, true. I, I mean, I suppose that's in the in the map curve within that fifteen percent. I think there are some lipids in the diet that's contributing towards that fifteen percent reduction. There's and then there's this talk of the three NOP kind of compound being added into in boluses and things to animals to get more significant methane reduction so so those things i think are are going to play an important role in the future we just can't be sure exactly how big that that reduction is going to be there's questions there uh, in relation to the feasibility and importance of of whole farm carbon budgeting or evaluation uh being carried out at, at farm level to try and support farmers uh in their decision making in relation to this uh, and the question is, how feasible uh, is this approach uh, and how practical is it to put it on the ground? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly feasible. Of course, if we had better handle on some of the, like if we had a more disaggregated in inventory that could kind of recognise hedgerows and individual trees, for example, that might contribute better to that kind of approach. But there's also a question of, do we want to, maybe we don't want every farm to be carbon neutral because maybe some farms are more on more productive land that we should focus on producing more milk and more beef on that land and, and spare other areas for the, for the offsetting activity. So I think it comes back to the question of scale. Do we want climate neutrality at a farm level, a catchment level, or, or regional or national level? And I think those are things that we need to think about carefully because they affect the mechanisms, I guess, of, of how we implement this. Uh, just a, a, a question in, in relation to um, the, the possibility of us continuing in the longer term to, to sequester uh, into, uh, um, I suppose, our, our peatlands, but also into our general farmlands uh, and the amount of research that's needed in that space. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very uncertain area. I mean, there, there could be there's big uncertainty linked with organic soil emissions, with net sequestration into grassland and mineral soils. At the moment, we've got a large emission problem. We don't have a big sink. We've got an emission source in the land sector. So it could be that could be reduced with better research, better understanding. We, we might not have as many emissions as we think, but equally, it could be even bigger than we think. So I think yeah, the research itself it's going to refine the estimates, but I think the ballpark of what we need to do is going to be the same. We know we need to re-wet, whether it's 10 tonnes or 20 tonnes of CO2 per hectare, we need to avoid those emissions. They're dead emissions, they're not productive. So we need to we need to take similar actions irrespective of what some of that future research is going to show, I think. And maybe a final question, there's, there's what is the short-term implication for policy change for policies changing and I suppose we're in the process of reviewing CAP uh, uh, to begin a new uh, uh, regime from 2023 on. What's the, what are the implications for that towards the long-term uh, achievement of the, 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 the kind of vision that you're, you're putting uh, out there? Yeah, I think it's fundamental because I think the support system to farmers shapes what farmers do. Farmers respond to, to the kind of policy and economic environment they're in. And I think that's a very powerful lever because it's using, using public money to reward farmers for doing different things. So I think farmers need to be, they, the, the mechanisms need to be carefully thought through so that the types of things farmers are rewarded for are actually the things that are going to deliver um, climate neutrality. And there's perhaps some care needed here about, perhaps it comes back to scale. There's a lot of talk about measuring everything at farm scale. We, we don't want to get too bogged down in in too much bureaucracy and measurement and verification either. We, we kind of need to have some quite simple rules about which actions lead to which outcomes and then to simply reward those actions without getting too bogged down in the finer detail, which is gonna to lead to a quagmire that doesn't benefit anybody. I suppose a huge level of appreciation of the talk you've just given uh, from the, the audience in terms of, of the, the challenging nature and, and the fact that it's it's uh, shed a lot of light on a lot of complex issues. So I, I suppose as a general comment from, from the, the audience. 
Thanks. Yeah, and I, I'd like to second that. I, I think it's a, you know, a really complicated area. So David, I think you have successfully managed to to uh, to break it down for us. So um, I mean, from what I'm taking it from the message here is uh, a, a, re, a proactive approach rather than a reactive approach is, is what's needed here. And uh, uh, that there's going to be significant change on the horizon. Uh, David, thank you so much for your time today and uh, preparing for today as well. Um, just to remind everybody that uh, today's webinar will be available on uh, a podcast version as well. So wherever you uh, tune into your podcast, you can download uh, this uh, today's podcast uh, or indeed any of the previous uh, webinars. Pat, thanks very much for helping with the questions today. And thanks to Yvonne in the background for helping on the technical side. And of course, to our series producer, Andy Boland as well. Um, next week, we'll be joined by uh, Gavin Hunt uh, from the Farm Zero Project. Uh, and also Keen White from Trinity College uh, Dublin, who's going to be talking about the Farm Zero C uh, project. And uh, so do tune in to that next Friday morning at 9.30. Uh, thanks again, uh, David, for joining uh, us today. And, um, and also a reminder that today's uh, presentation, the actual uh, presentation and uh, recording of the webinar will be available on the Chagas website and, and thanks to everybody for uh, really insightful questions. I think uh, it's a demonstration of, of, of the, the, the huge knowledge that uh, is out there amongst the farming sector and the awareness that's there of, of this really important issue. So um, we're delighted to, to keep covering this, this important topic and uh, do keep, keep the questions coming. Uh, but thanks again for joining us today and uh, we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost series, the weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Don't forget to join us live every Friday morning for our latest webinar. For more, visit chagisk.ie. And you can also rate, review and subscribe to the Signpost series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Mark Gibson and thanks for listening.